this sermon from Garden City Methodist Church. We want to invite you to worship with us each Sunday at 10.30 a.m., either in person or online. You can come to our beautiful sanctuary at 62 Varnado Avenue, Garden City, Georgia, or you can worship with us online as we stream our services at GardenCityUMC.com. Did y'all know that birds aren't real? It's my favorite conspiracy theory. Uh, there's this conspiracy theory on the internet, you can look it up, that the government in the 1970 killed all the birds and replaced them with surveillance drones. And you know this because they sell t-shirts. I've got one. It says birds aren't real on the front. On the back has a bird that says, I am a lie. I love it. You know your conspiracy theories probably aren't very um, legit if they exist to sell t-shirts. But it's my favorite one. Um, I don't believe that for a second but I think the shirt is cool. I uh, mention this because the book of Revelation um, propagates a lot of conspiracy theories. There are a lot of theories associated with the book of Revelation, and we're getting into the part of the book that, uh, where these kinds of theories tend to pop up. We're talking about the beast today, and the mark of the beast, and 666, and what they call the Antichrist. Um, you know, every pope is thought to be the Antichrist at some point, ever since the the Protestant Reformation, every pope gets accused of being the Antichrist. And uh, usually every president gets, gets accused of being the Antichrist. Um, you know, people said that Reagan was the Antichrist because R-O-N-A-L-D-6, R-E-A-G-A-N-6, and um, they found another six for Ronald Reagan to be the Antichrist. Um, I, don't, I don't think Reagan was the Antichrist. Uh, he really uh, did a bad job if he was. <laughs> um, you know, people said Obama was the Antichrist. People said Trump was the Antichrist. I'm sure people are out there saying Biden's the Antichrist. I mean, everybody, every president gets accused of being the Antichrist at some point. Um, you got a lot of conspiracy theories. And the idea is that there is going to be this figure that starts this new world order government that's going to take over the world and turn everybody against God. And so, so, um, these, these theories about who that's going to be pop up. And so far, I'm pretty sure most of them have been wrong. Um, I mean, maybe some of the still living people still have a chance to, to be the Antichrist. But, I mean, a lot of folks have come and gone and lived and died and turned out not to, to be the Antichrist. So today we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about these conspiracy theories. We're going to talk about uh, what the Bible is really saying about uh, about this stuff. And uh, spoiler alert, I, I'm not a big on conspiracies. I don't, I don't really believe these theories um, are supported in the text. But what the text does talk about is an unholy trinity, this, this perverse mockery of the holy trinity of God that, that is a part of the book of Revelation and um, twists who God is. And it's the devil. 
So here we are. We're, going to, we're starting in Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 17. A great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pangs, in the agony of giving birth. Then another portent appeared in heaven, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Then the dragon stood before the woman who was about to bear a child so that he might devour her child as soon as it was born. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was snatched away and taken to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God so that she can be nourished for 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought back, but they were defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Then I heard a great voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority under his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, but they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony." For they did not cling to life, even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens, and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who'd been given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she could fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time. Then from his mouth the serpent poured water like a river after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. It opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon was angry at the woman and sent, went off to make war on the rest of her children, those who keep the commands of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. This is the work of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So John in his vision He's seeing this, this vision of this woman who gave birth to a son. Clearly, it's pr pretty clear to me at least, that the son is Jesus. So Satan tries to defeat Jesus directly. He can't do it. And so instead of, instead of fighting Jesus, he turns against the woman who gave birth to Jesus. I, I believe this is the people of Israel, the people of God. But he can't do that either, so he makes war against her other children who are believers and who are the church. So this is a picture of what Satan is doing. Satan's going after Jesus, but he can't win. So since he can't win against Jesus, he's going to war with the church. He's going to war with God's people. And of course, we know he can't win that war either. But that doesn't mean he's not going to stop trying, that he's not going to start fighting. And it shows this, this satanic worldview that creeps into the world, this ideology that doesn't have room for God, this way that Satan is trying to snatch people away from Jesus, trying to snatch people away from their salvation by doing whatever he can. 
He's, since he can't have Jesus, he's going after the people of God, the people that Jesus loves, the people that Jesus died for. And he's trying as hard as he can to, to ruin as many lives as he can, to ruin as many futures as he can. That is what Satan's up to. This is what the dragon is doing in, in this picture. So this satanic ideology, this satanic idea, this, this war against the people of God is the backdrop of what's going on in the world. Satan is fighting as hard as he can to make sure that the people of God don't live lives worthy of their calling. And then another of the, holy, the unholy trinity pops up. We get a first beast called the beast from the sea. He's in chapter 13 verses 1 through 10. Then the dragon took his stand on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast riding out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on its horn were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave its power and his throne, and, its, and gave it his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. It was a giving, given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name had not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb that was slaughtered. Let anyone who has an ear listen. If you are to be taken captive into captivity, you will go. If you kill with the sword, with the sword you must be killed. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. So this first beast comes and blasphemes God. I think it's interesting that he has a head that looks like it's dead, but it has had a mortal wound that was healed. Um, this is kind of gross parody of the resurrection of Jesus. It, it, it's kind of like Jesus, but not. I think it's interesting, you know, the word antichrist is nowhere in Revelation. It's in First and Second John. But this is where we get the idea of the antichrist. Because there is someone who looks like Christ, kind of mimics and, and parodies the resurrection, but it's not. It's worshipped by the world. And I believe that in this context, the people that read about this beast would have immediately thought about Rome. It would have thought about Caesar and the way that, that Roman emperors were worshipped as gods in a, in a gross parody of the one true God. Michael Gorman, who wrote an excellent book on Revelation, says this. He says, put simply, the imperial cult of Rome was an elaborate God and country phenomenon or a type of civic or civil religion that in various ways attributed a sacred character to the Roman Empire and to the emperor himself. This cult was the concrete manifestation of an ideology, a political theology, which consists of three 
main convictions. The first conviction is that the gods have chosen Rome. The second conviction is that Rome and its emperor are agents of the gods' rule, will, salvation, and presence among human beings. And the third conviction is that Rome manifests the gods' blessings, security, peace, justice, faithfulness, and fertility among those who submit to Rome's rule. So Romans, they had this 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 civil theology that taught that the gods and Rome were one and the same, that Rome was supported by the gods and that if you wanted a peace and prosperity, you had better worship the emperor because the gods have chosen Rome and the, the emperor is an agent of the gods' will. This was the kind of, of theology that, that, that the first beast really was all about. Worship the emperor. Don't worship the one true God. Worship us and we'll bring you prosperity. And, you know, it says that the the beast uttered these blasphemous words and blasphemed God in his name. And that they were given this temporary authority. The the authority of Rome was wide-reaching in the whole known world. So I believe that that the, the first beast represents Rome and the Roman rule. Then there's a second beast. He's in chapter 13, starting at verse 11. Then I saw another beast that rose out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast on its behalf, and it makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound had been healed. It performed great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to the earth in the sight of all. And by the signs that it allowed to be performed on behalf of the beast, it deceives the inhabitants of the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give the breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Also, it caused all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead so that no one can buy or sell who does not have the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. Its number is 666. So the the beast from the land is kind of the incarnation of this Roman emperor worship. If the, the first beast was, was the empire and, and Roman emperor worship, the second one is, is that flesh put on that idea. It exists to promote the worship of the first beast, and it gives out the mark of the beast without which you cannot sell or buy. It's interesting, uh, Professor Mulholland says that it's interesting that it's in the mark and the forehead. The forehead is where your knowledge is, and the hand is where your actions are. If you don't think like the beast and act like the beast, then you can't sell or, or buy. And um, I'm just going to bust all the conspiracy theories. In my opinion, my belief from my study, that 666 almost certainly means Nero. Nero was an evil emperor that, that reigned in the, in the 60s A.D., Uh, If you add up the numbers of Nero's name in the Hebrew alphabet, it comes to 666. Uh, I believe that Nero is the one that that 
they would have thought about when they read this. I think that Nero is this second beast, and he represents the imperial cult of Roman emperor worship. That doesn't mean that there won't be another beast sometime in the future that will have some kind of a number, but, but as far as like microchips go, stuff like that, I, I don't believe any of that it really represents the mark of the beast. I believe that it was, um, I don't think there's like this conspiracy about it. I think it was referring to, to the Roman emperor Nero. So those are that. We've got, we've got the dragon who is Satan. We've got the first beast who is the, the cult of imperial uh, emperor worship. And we've got the second beast who represents the, the Roman emperor. Specifically, uh, in that time, in that place, manifests itself as Nero. So it's easy for us to think of these beasts as these nefarious evildoers who have some kind of secret scheme to end the world. But really, I think the whole point of this is that Satan wants us to worship anything but God. Satan is going to set up a different alternative belief system for us to, to worship anything except God, especially ourselves. And one of the most enticing idols that he can offer us is success and money and power and an easy life living under the, the worldly power system. Satan doesn't need a conspiracy to form a new world order. All he has to do is divert our attention and devotion and our worship away from the one true God and onto any idol that will fit the bill. It doesn't have to come in the form of some charismatic, secretly evil power. It can come anytime we try to act like the power of coercion and war and manipulation is greater than the power of the lamb that was slain. Gorman, uh, who I quoted earlier, says, Revelation is best read as a response to ordinary empire, to the everyday evils, injustices, and misguided alliances that are daily with us. Revelation is a powerful wake-up call to those who have taken for granted beliefs, commitments, and practices that should be unthinkable. John did not write Revelation to manufacture a crisis for people complacent about empire, as some people claim. Rather, complacency about Rome was the crisis. Add, adds Craig Coaster, the visionary world portrays the clash of powers in extraordinary form in order to evoke the kind of faith and resistance needed to follow the lamb in ordinary life. The people that were reading the book of Revelation for the first time had gotten complacent. They thought they could coexist. They thought they could worship the emperor of Rome and the, the lamb who was slain at the same time. They thought they could pay lip service to Rome but really offer their allegiance to God. And, and through this wonderful vision, they, John is saying, you can't do that. It's one or the other. C.S. Lewis in the Screw Tape Letters. I don't know if you've ever read the Screw Tape Letters. It's a great book. It's written from the perspective of a demon who's writing to his nephew, another demon, trying to deceive Christians. And so in the Screw Tape Letters, C.S. Lewis writes, It does not matter how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards if cards can do the trick. 
Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without sideposts. The Christians in this day were on that gentle road. And the book of Revelation through John is trying to put a stop in that road and say, no, turn around. This isn't it. This is leading you in the wrong way. You're going toward the dragon. You're going toward the beast. And and he's using this fantastic imagery to shake them out of their complacency. So we have this, this tendency to easily identify these forces in the past. We can look at Nero and say, he was a bad dude. He was one of the beasts. And we have this tendency to search in the future when we can imagine, we can we speculate what these antichrists will look like in the future. That's easy for us to do. But while we're busy looking for nefarious conspiracies, both past and future, we miss the smaller evil that accumulates around us. We miss the ways in which we are tempted to worship money and power and politics in our day. We fall into the trap of thinking that worldly leaders wielding weapons of war will somehow enter the, usher the kingdom of God into our world, and it's a lie. That can't happen. It's a blasphemy. And I think this teaching is so important to us right now because our world is continually selling us this partisan lie. If you vote for our guy, if you vote for our team, we're the good guys. And then you'll be on the side of the angels. If you vote for our party, then we're the ones that are going to help God bring about the, the, the right kind of life. But if you vote for the other team, if you support the other candidate, then you'll just ruin everything. But ultimately, our elections and our choices are all about who gets to wield worldly power who gets to wield this corrosive power and that's not what the kingdom of God is about we can't act like the kingdom of God is going to live or die based on the success of our preferred candidate or our preferred party indeed the power of God is that as long as people are worshiping the one on the throne and the lamb then the power of the kingdom of God is strong. And it's so tempting to give candidates not just our thoughts, not just our votes, but our devotion. And we drift into idolatry when we do that because our devotion is reserved for God, not for those people who need our vote to maintain their worldly power. Devotion and worship is reserved for God. And y'all, this is not a call, this is not meant to call out one party or the other. They're both doing the same thing. Our days are full of liberals and conservatives on TV battling over who has the moral high ground. And it's all covering for the fact that they all worship themselves. They all worship the beast. They all worship the dragon. They all covet worldly power. And and if you doubt for a second that any of those folks would sell out any principle that they claim to have in order to maintain that power, then you're fooling yourselves. It's all fallen Babylon. 
One side, one party sacrifices the lives of our unborn babies to the altar of bodily autonomy. But the other party is sacrificing the lives of our school children at the altar of guns. It's all bad. It's all fallen Babylon. It's all worship of the beasts. We cannot put our faith in these people. We cannot allow ourselves to worship these parties and these people. Even the folks who claim to be Christians and claim to stand up for Christian values when the, the, when the rubber meets the road and they have to make the right choice or lose an election, they'll choose to win the election every time. And there are people like the beast from the land who will try to convince you that God has ordained their favorite faction of earthly power. That God wants this one beast to reign because the beast is on the side of the angels. That your candidate is the exception to the rule that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You can bend the knee to this one because when you're worshiping this beast, then you're really honoring God. But it's the same lie that the Romans told. God has not chosen Rome the, the Roman emperor doesn't represent God. God hasn't <laughs> chosen America. Our leaders don't represent God. God has chosen the church. And the church is international. The unholy trinity will lose. They're doomed to fail. Fallen Babylon is doomed to fail. And so are those who bow down and worship the unholy trinity. Rome isn't around anymore. They fell. That was unimaginable back in the day. Every earthly power will fail compared to the might of the lamb who was slain. This is the invisible reality that John has for us today. And it is a tough pill for us to swallow. Y'all, it's okay to be patriotic. I'm not trying to say that it's not. It's okay to live your country, to love your country. Memorial Day is tomorrow, and it's absolutely appropriate to remember, to honor, and to revere our fallen heroes. America is a great place to live, and we don't have to pretend like it's not. But while our patriotism, while our patriotism is reserved for our nation, our worship is reserved for Jesus. Our votes can go to our candidates and to our parties, but our devotion is reserved for Jesus. And we get that confused so often. We have got to find a way to have a patriotic sense of pride for the place that we live while saving our primary allegiance to the Lamb on the throne. So today, I want to invite you to evaluate your relationship to worldly power. How much are you revering wealth and success? How much are you selling out for people who want to use you to stay in power? Do you prioritize your ambitions above the kingdom of God? Who are we really worshiping? Because scripture shows us that any system that is designed to prop up worship of anyone other than Jesus 
is really worshiping the evil one. So it's time to turn our worship and our devotion to Jesus today. Let's make sure we're committing ourselves to the Holy Trinity, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the way that we act, in the way that we engage ourselves in the world, in the way that we think, and especially in the way that we worship. Let's go to God in prayer. God, this is a tough pill to swallow. Reading about this unholy trinity, reading about the ways that Satan subversively tries to get us to worship ourselves. Subversively tries to sell us on worldly power and authority. God, he's succeeded more times than we care to admit. God, we confess that our worship and our devotion has been siphoned off over the years where we've believed that the lie that Satan is selling. We have looked at this unholy trinity. We've looked at this, these beasts and we've mistaken them for you. And God, the purpose of this letter is that we might repent. The purpose of this letter is that we might recognize the ways that our worship has been twisted and the ways that we've been deceived and we might repent and, and worship the one true God. So God, I pray that you will give us grace today to seek you out and to worship you and you alone. In your name I pray, amen.